You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. It is my privilege to bring to us our teaching text for today. Genesis chapter 22, verses 9 to 14. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from the heavens, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld me from your son, your only son. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. How's everybody doing today? Okay. (laughs) Oh, I'm so sorry. I have a lot of things to carry up here. I brought my phone to time myself because I have a lot of things I could say today. Um, But we don't want to be to talk all day. Um, We are in this teaching series right now called Hello, I Am, where we are digging into the names of God that we find in Scripture and looking at the stories in which those names of God are found so that we can find out more about the character of God and also see what we can learn from these passages that we can apply to our own lives. And so far we have explored two names that God gave to himself. I am who I am, Yahweh, and I am the God who sanctifies you. And I'm not gonna attempt to say the full title as eloquently as Patrick did last week. But today is slightly different in that we're gonna explore a name for God which was actually given to him by someone else. Now, in our first week, um, Patrick talked about the power of naming, both um, the pain of being named incorrectly and also the beauty of being called according to a name that fits us, like our favorite shirt, um, a name that reflects something of who we are. Now, I have experienced, uh, particularly in this country that I love, a lot of occasions when I have been misnamed. Gemma is a really common name in Europe, um, but I've had more gammas in the US than I care to count. Uh, But in fairness, when my parents first named me Gemma, it wasn't super common in Northern Ireland where I'm from. And my grandfather actually never got to grips with it until the day he died, he spelled it with a J. Very frequently called me Jennifer because that was just a more common name in his era. So I have been very used to having my name mistaken from birth. I've also accepted countless nicknames, um, like Jem, Gemo, Jammers, Jemski, Jemalu, Gigi, Gemma Dilemma was my Uncle Jim's favorite. Um, and more recently, I am Mama or Mimi or Mama Llama, which is Libby's new favorite. And I have received and accepted all of these with fondness and affection because they were spoken with fondness and affection. But I also, I vividly remember uh, the day when I was, I was maybe nine, um, and some of the boys in school decided that their new nickname for me would be Fatty. 
And you know what? That one wasn't okay. That one wasn't spoken with fondness or kindness or affection. It wasn't designed to enhance our relationship, but to cause pain and separation. And maybe we've all had experiences like that, where some of the names that we've been given are good and appropriate and some way call out the beauty in us or speak of the relationship that exists between us and the person. Um, but in contrast, there's other names that seek to diminish us and make us feel small. And in the name for God that we are looking at today, we are witnessing someone calling God a name that fits, a name that reflects who he is, a name that is spoken with reverence because it is an expression of the experience of God. It's not said to diminish his character or to destroy relationship. It is uttered in such a way that builds and enhances relationship. And God in his humility receives a name bestowed on him by his creation. Jehovah Jireh, you are the God who provides. And today we're gonna unpack a story in which Abraham has an encounter with the character of God and his whole experience gets summed up in this naming of God at the end of the encounter. And I imagine that at the moment when Abraham utters the name Jehovah Jireh, it is like the psalmist says, like honey on his lips. But before we get to the sweetness of this name, we have to wade through what I think is honestly one of the most challenging passages of scripture. Thank you, Mr. Boatwright. Um, Jehovah Jireh is one of the most beautiful and comforting names of God. How, how wonderful to be reminded in the midst of unemployment or financial distress or loneliness or infertility that, that God is the God who sees and provides. But this name for God cannot be separated from the dark and painful story in which it comes out of. And isn't it true that so often in our lives, the story of God's provision comes out of seasons of pain and trial? Uh, in my own life, I have experienced so much of the goodness and extravagant provision of God. But there are few of those that I can separate from the seasons of pain and difficulty out of which that provision came. Um, about a month ago, we all got COVID in my family. Uh, we all got it in a staggered way, so our time of isolation was particularly long. But before my husband started experiencing symptoms, um, that morning, a gift arrived for me and in the mail. It was this necklace, which you may or may not be able to see. It's a key from a company called The Giving Key in LA. It has the word grace on it. And the word grace is what I have been feeling God speaking over my life in this season, uh, in the midst of all of the change and all of the uncertainty that is ahead. Anytime I feel overwhelmed, I just feel like the Lord is just speaking grace. There's an abundance of grace. And when I put my new fancy necklace on that morning, I had no idea how in need of God's abundant grace I was gonna be over those next 15 days as we wrestled with sickness and fatigue and, and not being able to go outside. 15 days of young kids playing indoors in an apartment, not being able to see the light of day. And I have so many stories of God's provision during those weeks, mostly from within this community people sending us meals and groceries, people picking up supplies from the pharmacy, people praying for us, leaving gifts on our stoop. And I can wholeheartedly look back over those few weeks and say, Jehovah Jireh, you are the God who sees and provides. But that provision also came in the midst of difficulty. And um, right now, as Patrick said, we're expecting twins. We already have two beautiful children. And this is a time for us to celebrate the abundant and extravagant provision of God. And yet for me, that joy is intrinsically connected to 12 years of pain and struggle. 
And the joy and the gift of these new lives doesn't take away the pain of all the waiting and losses in between. So as we go through this passage today, just know from the outset that it elicits more questions than answers. The name Jehovah Jireh may be comforting. This passage is certainly not. It presents us with God both in his knowableness, but also in his profound mystery. And yet, as followers of Jesus, we believe scripture to be the divinely inspired word of God. We believe that the Holy Spirit can speak to us and teach us through all of scripture, and that we are called to honestly wrestle with even the most difficult and disturbing parts, and to ask for God's help to lead us to the light that will guide us on our journey with him. So we're gonna spend the first half today really digging into the majority of this chapter. I know we just picked up from verse nine. Um, And I'm gonna warn you ahead of time that not all of our questions will be answered. And then in the second half, we're going to see how we can apply this text to our lives today. So let me just begin by giving some context for this passage. We first meet Abraham, or Abram as he's first known in Genesis 12. God calls Abram to leave his father's house and his country and go to the land that God would show him. And because of his obedience, God made a covenant with him and a promise to bless all of the nations of the earth through him and his offspring. Now, there's only one small problem in that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are childless and very old. But God promises them that they will have a son. And 24 years later, ever had to wait that long for a promise? 24 years later, that son is born, which we read about in Genesis 21, which is the chapter right before our teaching text. And they name this promised son Isaac, which means laughter, a name that speaks of a joy and giddiness in witnessing the impossible, witnessing the miraculous birth of a long-awaited son in their old age. So not only is Isaac the beloved son of Abraham and Sarah, but he also embodies the promise, the covenant that God has made with Abraham. Genesis 22 opens with the words, sometime later. And commentators believe that this indicates that a significant amount of time has elapsed between the events of Isaac's birth in Genesis 21 and Genesis 22. In fact, the final verse of Genesis 1 says, and Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. And most scholars believe that Isaac is a young man at this point, probably a teenager. And the entirety of that opening verse says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, the language of testing is used quite a bit in the Old Testament. We generally don't like this word. We are pretty allergic to any word connected to us having to prove ourselves or the idea that someone's like waiting in the wings, just watching to see if we're gonna fail or succeed. But it was common in the Old Testament. And there are a couple of important things to note about the nature of testing. Firstly, testing was to reveal the values or commitments of the person being tested. Secondly, throughout the Old Testament, the word test or testing is only used in connection with the people of God. In fact, it's only ever applied to people of faith, for those who were already in covenant relationship with God, which of course, Abraham was. But in case we just think, oh, it's just an Old Testament thing, it also features in the New Testament as well. In the writings of the Apostle James, we read this. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So in our teaching text, Abraham is being tested by God. Abraham is known as the father of faith. And yet this is not because his faith was perfect. 
Um, If we look elsewhere in his story, we see that Abraham laughed when God first told him that he would have a son, not exactly full of faith there. Um, When he went to Egypt, he was so scared because his wife was beautiful and he thought Pharaoh might want her and might kill him to get to her. So he said, actually, she's my sister. She's not my wife. Um, He also slept with his wife's servant, Hagar, in the hopes of helping God along a bit in the producing of this promised son that he'd been waiting for for so long. So Abraham's faith was not perfect. But what is true is that his imperfect faith has produced perseverance and that at all costs, Abraham has kept going, kept walking with God. And this scene that we're witnessing in Genesis 22 is really the hinge point of his journey. Indeed, this is the last known interaction that he will have with the voice of God. And it will reveal that the long wait for Isaac wasn't in fact Abraham's true test. So Abraham calls, so God calls Abraham by name and Abraham responds, here I am. And then we read these words. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, kind of rubbing it in a little bit, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, when we come to parts of scripture like this, we can often want to skip over, gloss over, avoid thinking about it too much, but we're going to intentionally pause and do some wrestling here. God has essentially just told Abraham to kill his son in order to prove his love. The word here for sacrifice indicates an offering that is to be totally consumed. In other words, Isaac, this long-awaited promised son on whom all of God's promises to Abraham rest is to totally disappear. And this sacrifice will act as proof of his devotion to God. Now, what kind of God would ask for this? I'm sure you would agree that God is behaving outrageously out of character. Isn't this request in complete conflict with everything else God seems to value? How could a God who is love, a God who cannot sin, command the murder of a young innocent boy? How could a God who Jesus says knows even when a sparrow falls to the ground demand such cruelty? And why would God promise Abraham a son and then take that very son away? What on earth is going on here? Now, some commentators argue that because child sacrifice was disturbingly rife in those days, that a command to sacrifice a child would not have been as shocking to Abraham as it is to us. In the Canaanite worldview, the God who provided fertility was also entitled to demand a portion of what had been produced, whether that was in terms of animals, grain, or even children. Now, in the Old Testament narrative, though, God is continually telling the people of Israel not to engage in these pagan practices. Through the prophet of Micah, for example, we read these words, "'With what shall I come before the Lord "'and bow down before the exalted God?' Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And in our teaching text, it would appear that God is asking Abraham to be obedient to a command that elsewhere in scripture is revealed as being utterly repulsive to God and completely contrary to his nature. Now, not only do we need to wrestle with what God is asking of Abraham, but secondly, we need to wrestle with Abraham's response. I mean, why doesn't Abraham object? 
We read earlier in the story of Abraham that when God told him that he was gonna destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, Abraham begged God not to. He argued with God. He said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? But here, when he is asked to sacrifice his only son, we are simply told that early the next morning he got up and loaded his donkey. He made no protest. He asked no questions. In fact, he didn't even respond in the affirmative. There was just silent preparation for what he had been asked to do. Now, regardless of all the ifs or whys or hows, Abraham obeys. Although it seemed utterly at odds with everything that God has revealed of himself and his plans, Abraham quickly begins to make preparations for the unthinkable. Scripture says he took Isaac and two of his servants and set out on a three-day journey to the mountain of Moriah with the wood and the fire he would need for the burnt offering. For three days, he has to live with this secret, tortured by the knowledge of what he needs to do when he gets there, haunted by the tension between his affection for his son and his devotion to God. For three days, he must wrestle with the confusion of what God has asked of him, with his doubts and fears that this command will not only kill his son, but kill the promises that he has built his entire life around. Now, on the third day, when Abraham sees the mountain in the distance, he says something interesting to his servants. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now, is Abraham lying to them? Is he simply not willing to confront the truth of what he plans to do? Or is he hoping against hope that this will be the truth? Is this some sort of utterance of prophetic prayer or expression of hope? Does Abraham so deeply trust that regardless of what God has told him to do, that the boy, the promised child of the covenant, will come back down the mountain with him safe and well? Abraham now puts the wood on Isaac's back. He himself carries the fire and the knife and they leave the servants behind and walk on together, just father and son, in a lot more silence. Now, I said earlier that Isaac's most likely a teenager, so he's old enough to know what's going on here. He knows that there's something strange. He's seen his father making animal sacrifices before. And after some time, Isaac speaks up and says, Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replies, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, once again, this is a little ambiguous. Is this a lie from Abraham? Is he trying to protect his son for as long as possible from the knowledge of what he's going to do? Or does he truly trust that God will provide an alternative, that God will create a way out? Both his response to Isaac and Abraham's words to the servants suggest that although Abraham is step by step preparing himself to do what God has asked of him, there is a sense of hope or expectation that something else is going to happen instead. And when they get to the mountain where Ryan started reading, Abraham builds an altar. He takes the wood from his son's back and arranges the wood on the altar. He binds his son and then he picks up his boy, holds him close to his body, just as he's done hundreds of times since the day of his birth and places him on top of the wood. He reaches for the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord calls twice from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And the fact that his name is called twice indicates the sense of urgency. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. 
Abraham looks up, sees a ram caught by its horns in the thicket, takes the boy off the altar, unbinds him, places the ram that God has provided in his place and sacrifices the ram as a burnt offering to God. And because of this provision of the ram, Abraham calls the place after his new name for God, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. Now this can literally mean the Lord who provides. It can also mean the God who sees ahead or the God who sees to it, like the way we would say in English, you know, I will see to it that that is done. Interestingly, the, the literal translation of Moriah, where this all happened, is the land of vision. Abraham is declaring that God is the one of ultimate vision, the one who sees everything in its entirety, the one who sees in full, the one who will see to it that everything is taken care of. The writer of Hebrews gives us some insight into these verses. In Hebrews 11, it says this, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who, had been, he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Abraham reasoned that if this was something that, was going to ha that he was gonna have to go through, then God would raise the dead in order to keep his promise. But instead of a resurrection, the knife was stayed and Isaac was spared. And because of Abraham's obedience, all of the promises made to Abraham at the start of his journey are now augmented and guaranteed unreservedly by God. And commentators believe that it is this affirmation of the promises of God that give this chapter its prominence, not just in the story of Abraham, but in the entire Pentateuch. Now, no doubt this passage has raised questions and problems and doubts for you. And as I said at the beginning, not all of the questions are answered by the text. Um, if you're participating in the Good Way course right now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how we engage with scripture and the fact that Jesus is the embodied word of God. Jesus is God with skin on. Jesus says, if you wanna know what God is like, look at me. So we can know what God is like by looking at Jesus. Jesus is the context of all contexts when it comes to reading scripture. And therefore we should read everything in scripture through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ. And so for a few minutes, I want us to do that. Sometimes in scripture, we encounter what is referred to as prophetic reenactments. Um, if you read the book of Hosea, for example, you'll see that God calls Hosea, the prophet, to marry um, Gomer, a prostitute, in order to create a prophetic picture of God's faithful love for unfaithful Israel. It's like God wants to show in micro what, what he's doing on a macro level. And this story of Abraham and Isaac takes on a larger significance in the biblical narrative when we reflect on it as prophetic enactment of the story of redemption. You may have already noted some similarities in this story and the story of the crucifixion of Christ. Isaac is the beloved only son, the long-awaited son, the son of the covenant. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would usher in a new covenant between God and his people. It's hard to picture Isaac with the wood for the altar strapped on his back without thinking about the wooden beam carried on the back of Jesus, the wood that would be the instrument of his death. Isaac, as beloved son, follows, submitting in obedience, surrendering in trust to his father. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, perfectly sinless, falls on his knees before the Father and prays, my Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will, but as you will. In Genesis 22, God provides the ram for the sacrifice, which Abraham previously had said would be a lamb. And when John the Baptist speaks of Jesus, the Messiah, he refers to him like this, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Of course, the big difference in these two stories is that Isaac is spared and Jesus is not. In exchange for Isaac, the ram is provided in the thicket, but Jesus dies taking upon himself all of the sin and brokenness of humanity, past, present, and future. This is the ultimate exchange. Isaac's near sacrifice is a precursor for the full and atoning sacrifice of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. In the crucifixion story, we see a God who would rather suffer pain and violence than demand it. We see a God who stops at nothing in order that humanity would experience his love and life and fullness. Jesus is the ultimate provision of Jehovah Jireh. The best and fullest provision that we have ever or will ever receive is the person of Christ through his death and resurrection. Now, reading this text through the lens of Jesus may still not fully satisfy your questions or settle your offenses with this text, but in spite of these lingering question marks, what can we learn from this passage that we can apply to our lives with God? And I wanna share three points that honestly really all blend into one another. The first thing that I think we learn from Abraham, this father of faith, is that doubt is not the opposite of faith. I don't believe that Abraham's silence was devoid of doubting and questioning. I imagine he walked towards that mountain for three days, inwardly questioning everything he knew to be true of God and himself, wrestling with the confusion of all that was being asked of him. Jared von Rabb says that Abraham is going out onto the dark road of God forsakenness, where God seems to be contradicting himself and taking away the very gift he gave. Many of you know that Six years ago, my sister-in-law, Louise, died after a cruel battle with um, cervical cancer. And one of the things that was so difficult and painful about her story was that when she was first diagnosed with cancer, um, a few months after she married my brother, they were able to do surgery and she was in the clear. Um, however, they were told that it would be extremely difficult for them to conceive and for her to be able to carry a baby full term because they'd had to remove her entire cervix. And so we prayed and believed, and against all odds, a miracle baby boy was born. And he became this symbol for us of, of, of hope and promise. But a few months after that, a huge inoperable tumor was discovered in her abdomen. The cancer was back, it was aggressive, and no matter what the doctors did, nothing would shrink this thing. And a week before that miracle baby boy turned one, I stood beside her bed as she died. And I remember uh, later that day, my beloved pastor from home came to our house, my brother's house, and um, he looked me in the eyes and he said, Gemma, you're gonna have some dark days ahead. But I want you to remember that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is the pathway we walk on the journey of faith. 
And you can bet that I have lived with countless doubts and questions since then. And in those days, all of it got cloaked in a thick silence. And one day, someone asked me, Gemma, what answer could God give you that would make it okay that Louise died? And I said, nothing. There's nothing that I could hear that would help me understand. There's nothing that I could hear that would make it all okay. And so I realized in that moment that in order for me to journey with God from that place meant that my doubts and questions were not gonna be something I could shed like a jacket on a hot day. They would have to become part of me as I continued on the journey of faith. John Ortberg says, faith is not doubt-free certainty. And if you're sitting here today and you have doubts and questions, just know that you're not alone. And just, just know that those, those doubts and questions can prevent you from journeying onwards with God, but they don't have to. You can learn to live with questions. You can learn to love again and trust again, even in the midst of painful mystery. Jerry Sitzer says that we don't get over our losses. We absorb them into our lives, like soil receives decaying matter until it becomes part of who we are. The Bible says faith is being sure of what we hope for, but this isn't a wishful thinking. Our, our faith isn't based on things working out according to what we think is best. Our ultimate hope is the person of Jesus. We sang about it this morning, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, not wholly leaned on Jesus' name. Faith is this marrying of what is visible and what is invisible. It is a surrendering of control, of leaning not on our own understanding, but trusting that God will be true to who he is. Abraham trusted and obeyed even when he didn't fully understand. He continued to put one foot in front of the other. In Romans 4, Paul says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Which brings me to my next point. Abraham trusted in God's goodness even when he was being asked to do something that was contrary to the character of God. Now, how could Abraham do this? Well, when we consider this story, we have to consider it not just in light of the entire biblical narrative of redemption, we also have to consider it in the context of Abraham's entire journey with God. This is one episode near the end of a 100-year journey of walking with God, of knowing his voice, of encountering his goodness and provision time and time again. In the story of Abraham, we continually read of him being called to surrender. There are countless times when God asks him to let go and surrender to trust. He left his family and homeland in Ur and went to Shechem, then he went to Bethel. From there he went to Egypt and on into Hebron. He's always leaving something behind. And all of those leavings represent self-surrender, giving up self-sovereignty for God's sovereignty. All of these were invitations for him to die to himself, to his own will. But all of these leavings also made way for a gradual receiving of more and more of the blessing and promises and provision of God. In each of these places of letting go, we read that Abraham built altars. And, and the building of an altar was a way of recognizing the presence of God in that place. So in all of this surrendering, Abraham wasn't being diminished but was being filled with fresh revelation of who God was. Yes, Abraham demonstrated trust and obedience, 
that God demonstrated trustworthiness and provision. For Abraham, God has a proven track record of provision. And so in Genesis 22, Abraham is being asked once again to relinquish control and to trust, once again to build another altar. And so this test has to be understood in the context of Abraham's entire journey up until this point. He has a lived history with God. He has a lived history of God's providing for him in surprising and unexpected ways. I love this from James Smith. I now see that love that has been proved can be trusted even when things don't make sense. And finally, because of this lived experience with the proven love of God, Abraham had a heart that was willing to surrender everything to God, even the very promise of God. I wanna read, this is a long quote from Eugene Peterson, but I think it really adds to what we're talking about, so I wanna read it. Sacrifice was the motif by which he had lived for years the letting go, the leaving behind, the traveling light. Faith repeatedly tested by sacrifice was a way of life for Abraham. Each sacrifice left him with less of self and more of God. Each sacrifice abandoned something of self on an altar from which he traveled onward with more vision, more promise, more presence. Maybe by now he is used to living trustingly in the seemingly absurd that which he could not anticipate, that which is beyond his imagining. Maybe by now, he is accustomed to the operations of providence. Friends, we are called to live in surrender with open hands to God. Jesus himself said, if you try to hold on to your life, you're gonna lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will truly find it. There is life that is only found on the other side of surrender, on the other side of dying to self. And this sacrificial life is mysteriously the only means by which our faith truly grows and matures. Years ago when we first moved to New York, one of my favorite things to do was flying trapeze. There's gonna be a photo. Now I know when you look at this photo and me, you will have serious doubts as to whether we are the same person. Um, I'm certainly a lot less agile now than I was then, let me tell you. Um, now, I was never any kind of expert. I was always a beginner. But one of the fun things you get to do after you've mastered some basic swings is that you get to work with a catcher. And the catcher is very experienced. They have a much clearer idea of the very specific timing involved in everything. And as the person who's swinging and trying to be caught, a lot of what is involved is simply listening for the call, responding immediately with a posture of hands stretched out openness to being received by the catcher. And then all you have to do is just let go. Yeah, couldn't do it now, but you know, it's nice to be able to look back, isn't it, and have those memories. Um, Jesus calls us to be a people who let go and surrender to trust to trust that his hands will be provided to catch us, to trust that in letting go of our lives, we will mysteriously find all we're mostly deeply longing for. And he calls us to let go of anything and everything that is keeping us from living in complete communion with him, whether that is unhealthy relationships, money, sex, power, unforgiveness, ego, our need for approval, vanity, self-righteousness, addiction, pride, but sometimes it's even good things, gifts or promises that we're clinging to rather than clinging to the one who gave the gift and made the promise. Mm -hmm. 
Let me tell you one last story. My husband and I first started coming along to this community um, just over eight years ago. And at that time, I didn't have a visa that allowed me to work, so it was pre-children. I had a lot of time on my hands, friends. I don't know what I did with all of it entirely, but I did spend a lot of time just getting involved with the community here and just meeting with people, doing things that needed to be done. There had been no worship whenever we um, joined, so John and I got that started. And one day, um, not that long afterwards, I was taking a walk and I felt like God said, Gemma, I want you to ask me for the thing that you want. And, and I said, well, okay then. I would like to work for our church. I want them to sponsor my religious workers visa and I want them to offer me a job. And because God had suggested me asking, I presumed that all of this was going to just happen. Um, and then a series of things happened that made it very clear that what I was hoping for was not at all on the cards. And in my confusion, I came to God and I said, why would, you, why would you get me to ask you for something that you didn't plan on giving me? And in that moment, this scene of Abraham raising his knife to sacrifice Isaac came vividly into my imagination. And I felt like God said, Gemma, you're clinging to this. This sense of call and promise that you have has become an idol for you and it has to die. And five or so years later, uh, I was here in this room, and just in worship, and someone came up to me and said, um, Gem, I feel, like someone, I feel like God has given me a word for you. In fact, it's a picture, and I don't usually have those kind of experiences, but I just felt like I should come and share with you. And he said, I feel like God wants to remind you of the story of Abraham and Isaac, but in particular, I feel like God wants you to look up and see the ram in the thicket. And later that week, I was asked to join staff at our church. And I knew that now was the right time for the provision that I had felt so desperate for five years prior. And a lot had happened in the years in between, a lot of character forming pain and struggle, um, a lot of deconstruction and healing and reconstruction. And one thing I knew for sure was that this was no longer an idol for me. It wasn't something I needed to fix some broken part of me or to prove anything. I got to receive it as a gift. There was no striving, there was no clinging. I got to do it from a place of complete interior freedom. What a gift. And I could say in that moment, Jehovah Jireh. What are the things in your life that you're clinging to? What are the things that have become idols for you? What are the things that you're holding on to and scared to let go of out of fear that God might not be as good as you wanna believe he is? And what would it look like for you to trust that in letting go of those things and surrendering them on the altar that God himself will reveal to you that he is Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees ahead the God who provides, the God whose invitation to you is always life. We're gonna move into a time of, of response and as part of our response, um, you're gonna be invited to take communion. Earlier we talked about the trapeze metaphor. 
But interestingly, the word trapeze, um, which is the bar that I was holding on to, um, comes from the Greek word trapeza, which actually means table. And to my knowledge, it's only used one time in the New Testament. And it's used when Jesus gathers all of his friends around what we now think of as the communion table, where he celebrates the Passover with them. He breaks the bread and tells them that his body will be broken. He tells them that the cup is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. He tells them that he is letting go of his life for the sake of the world. And so we come to the table this morning, we come to a trapeze, the ultimate surrender for our sake, where we remember all that Jesus made possible by his sacrifice on the cross, and where we also lay down our lives afresh, where in the taking of the wafer and the juice, we're saying, Jesus, by your sacrifice, I am entirely yours, and you are entirely mine. And I just don't, I don't wanna be a Christian just in name, but also in practice, I wanna follow the way of Jesus, the way of surrender, the way of dying to self for the sake of abundant life. And the prayer rugs will be here if you feel like you wanna come and kneel and surrender. Members of our prayer team will be here if you want someone to stand with you as you seek God's provision in a particular area or you wanna ask for, for strength to walk in obedience when the way doesn't make sense right now, trusting that God in his goodness will provide. And we can't do that by sheer willpower and gritting our teeth. Only we can do that through the strength of Christ who knows what it is to walk in darkness, who knows what it is to drink the cup and to surrender all for the sake of love. So would you just stand with me? I wanna pray for us. I wanna invite you just to close your eyes and just hold out your hands in a posture of receiving before God. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence, God. You are the God who sees. You see each one of us. You know our journey intimately. You know exactly how we are as we stand here right now in this space. And Holy Spirit, we just give you permission to speak. We give you permission to move in this place, to move in our lives. Lord, would you bring to mind those, those areas of in, our, in our lives that we're clinging to, that we're scared to let go of? Lord, in the gentle and humble way that you do, would you just come and, and show us where we need to let go, where we need to surrender? And would you remind us today who we are? Jesus, I pray that all over this room today, the weak would be made strong.
also have the sense this morning that God has a question to ask some of you. When we read in scripture, um, there's a part in the gospels where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And they respond by saying, well, some people say this, some people say that. And then Jesus looks Peter in the eye and says, and who do you say I am? A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our hearts and our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think for some of us in this room today, we might find that we can easily answer objectively what other people might think about God or what the Bible says about God or even what we think we should say or feel about God. But this morning, I just feel like God wants to lock eyes with you and get really personal and just say, who do you say I am? Who am I to you today? And will you trust me enough to let me take you on a journey, even through the mystery, and let me reveal to you my name as Jehovah Jireh? take some time to, to worship and respond and all who wish to express their faith in Jesus are welcome to the table. There's two buckets on either side of me and if you feel comfortable, you're welcome to open up the packet and take communion at your seat. Just put your mask back up afterwards and just feel free to kneel or pray with someone beside you or at the front but let's take this time to do business with God. Some of you are really in it right now. You're in the midst of, of, of darkness and uncertainty. And we just want to pray that God would really just meet you in that place. And if you would love someone to pray for you, I'd love some members of the prayer team to just be at the front and just be available if anyone wants prayer. we come to the trapeza, as we remember the letting go that Jesus did for us, may we also invite his presence to put his finger on those areas that he's also inviting us to let go of. And may we remember that the invitation is life and life to the full, the gifts of God for the people of God. Let's worship together.